0: are American stories and we love free enterprise, we love business and we love Shark Tank it's a great show, it's number one on television on Friday nights and it's practically running round the clock on CNBC at night as well beating the regular programming during the day by the way and next up in the tank from this past week is a guy named Martin with his company Smart Plate here's the pitch
1: Hi Sharks, my name is Martin Del And I'm from Philadelphia, PA. My company is SmartPlate, and I'm seeking $1 million for a 15% stake in my company. Every day, millions of Americans work hard to maintain a healthier lifestyle. From health-conscious consumers to elite athletes, success comes down to eating smart. The problem is, eating smart with current solutions requires tedious manual calorie counting, which is time-consuming, frustrating, and worst of all, inaccurate. Smart plate is the world's first intelligent plate that instantly analyzes your entire meal with up to 99% accuracy.
0: And Alex is doing the math because he knows I'm going to ask him. So let's see, a million dollars, 15% stake. What's he pe- pegging in the valuation of his business?
1: I can't do it quite exactly, but it's just shy of 7 million. Just shy
0: of 7 million. That'll do. That yeah. gets him a ding and a bell. So how does the smart plate work?
1: It uses food recognition technology and load sensors to identify and weigh Everything sitting on its surface, from single foods to prepared meals like pizza, vegetable fried rice, and even a garden salad. All you have to do is place your food on the plate the way you normally would and bam, get all your nutritional information in a snack, wow. including calories, carbs, and proteins. Our mission is to get smart plate into the hands of every American who wants to improve their health.
0: Martin passes out some plates and then drops a word that no shark likes to hear Prototype.
1: Do you have plates there that we can look at? Yes, yes, yeah, I do. Like I'm going to, have say to, say to hand those out right now. So we have a prototype of our merchandising, and then we also have uh, oh, this is a the prototype, prototype of the
0: smart plate. Uh-oh. Oh. uh oh <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when asked how the plate can differentiate between ingredients used, Martin complicates things.
2: How does it differentiate fried rice with a certain type of oil and another
1: type of oil, you know? I'm, I'm so oils and things of that nature... We're not going to be able to pick up, but we do have a solution for that. So we, we give consumers three options. They can either snap it, scan it, or say it. So we have over 350,000 CPG barcodes. If somebody's out at a restaurant, we have a database of restaurant meals as well. Over 100,000
2: restaurant meals. So I'm from New York City, and here's what we believe. On the eighth day, God made street meat. There's no barcode yes. on the dirty little hot dogs that I eat out mm-hmm. there. How is that going to help me? If you
1: take a picture of the hot dog, we'll be able to analyze and identify that it's a hot dog then if it, was, if it was on you know a sm- the smart plate, we'd be able to identify the weight. If you didn't have the smart plate, um, just with your smartphone and the snap it feature, you'd be able to take a picture. We'd say that it's a hot dog.
3: I'm thoroughly confused. I'm thoroughly
0: <laughs> confused. The smart plate ain't so smart no. is what he's saying. When asked to demonstrate, Martin uses his phone rather than the smart plate to scan the food.
4: Martin, can you demonstrate how that app actually works so you get a better feel for it?
1: I'd love to do that. What's firing right now, Uh, is the food recognition portion. We don't have the weight sensors in these aesthetic prototypes yet, but I can demonstrate um, the functionality if that's okay. We're going to hit Snap It. Then we're going to look at our piece of pizza here. We're going to take a picture. Got it. And then within seconds, it'll be able to identify it. And there you see it. I see three cameras there. Yes. So talk about those. Absolutely. Yeah, because
2: what were you you using your phone for if the cameras are all in this... I was u- so, what I was using my phone for
1: was to simulate the cameras.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, I am lost. How much are they trying to sell these things for?
1: So, it's going to retail for $199? Oh. For us, that's a $469
5: honey, Sweetie Poopsie, that's crazy. <laughs>
0: sweetie Poopsie? Damon, are you in or
2: out? I'm uncomfortable with the way that you're pit- making this pitch.
0: Well, too bad. I mean, in out
2: it's a, a little, you, and, you, and so I'm out.
5: Oh, Mr. Wonderful, what about you? Martin, when I when I look at how people eat, including myself and my family, I think that people don't eat all their food at home near the smart plate. They have lunch at school. They have lunch on the run. They eat in a restaurant at night. You're going to spend a lot of time and money trying to sell these plates to people, and I don't really think they have any merit at all.
0: I'm out. What a slam! But I was thinking the same thing. Cuban dinner out. I don't see any
5: technology (laughs) that you guys introduced. This is a technological product. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You sold it as such, right? Yes. It is. You're trying to sell the value, and what I'm hearing is the value proposition, the core competency, you're hiring from third-party design companies and you're hoping they can make it work.
1: They're they're experienced in the space. What if it
5: doesn't work? You're betting your entire company on some external design company. You guys can't control your own destiny. You have no idea whether or not this stuff is even going to work. That is a huge problem for me. I'm out.
0: What about guest shark billionaire, Chris Saka?
1: You're trying to sell people a very expensive, very fragile, hard thing that doesn't fit in their pocket, that can't go with them anywhere, and you're charging a lot of money for it. There are so many different ways this business fails right out of the gate, and for that reason, I'm out.
0: And Barbara? Are you in or out?
4: Yeah, your presentation really was just terrible. I'm sorry to say, just terrible and confusing.
0: I'm out. <laughs> okay. Terrible and confusing. That was
3: a depressing one. (laughs) That was really
0: depressing. It was over by the third clip, I'm telling you. Jesse, thanks for doing that. We love bringing you Shark Tank, because in the end, you get to learn a little bit about business. And by the way, this guy was pegging his business at an almost $7 million valuation, and he didn't have a sale. Not a single one. He didn't have a single (laughs) sale. And it's it's as if the guy had never watched Shark Tank. Because as Alex, what do they always ask? What are your margins? What are your margins, which means you have to have a sale to have a margin of profit. And this is Our American Stories. We love to cover it all. We love the culture. And we love it, particularly when the culture can be this darn entertaining and teach us a few lessons about why the 1%, those billionaires sitting up on the stage, give their money to others to make others a member of the 1% and live the American dream. And these folks don't just want the 1%'s money, of course. They want their wisdom and their experience. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
5: want a prediction about the weather you're asking the wrong phil i'll give you a A winter prediction it's gonna be cold it's gonna be gray and it's gonna last you for the rest of your life
0: this is our american stories and that's groundhog day that's bill murray and every time that song came up sunny and shares i got you babe it just got funnier and funnier And today, on this day in history, and we're doing a couple today, because some days there are just a couple of good stories. We celebrate Groundhog Day, first referenced in 1841 on this day in history. And, well, we wanted to know where the story came from, the traditions, so we put faith to the task, and here's what she came up with
6: Groundhog Day is nationally observed on February 2nd. Attached to its history is a story of folklore. Folklore being the traditional beliefs, customs, and stories of community passed through the generations by word of mouth. Now before all the folklore of Groundhog Day, February 2nd was known as Candlemas, a Christian holiday, also known as the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord Jesus. It is meant to commemorate the presentation of Jesus at the temple and the purification of the Virgin Mary. During this day, candles were blessed and distributed during a worship service, or brought to the church to be blessed, and then used for the rest of the year. Also, oftentimes clear skies on Candlemas meant a longer winter. There's some foreshadowing for you, pun intended. This tradition started with the Romans, who then brought it to the Germans, who then brought it to Pennsylvania. Sadly, much of the Christian tradition had lost its prominence and February 2nd became centered around weather prediction. The German settlers had concluded that if a hedgehog appeared on Candlemas and cast a shadow, there would be a second winter. With them came the legend of Candlemas Day, which reads, For as the sun shines on Candlemas Day, so far will the snow swirl in May. For as the snow blows on Candlemas Day, so far will the sun shine before May. So the story goes that the celebration of Groundhog Day began with the earliest German settlers in Pennsylvania. They had then come to believe that the hedgehog had the power to predict the coming of spring. They watched the hedgehogs to know when to plant their crops. Now by the time the first German immigrants settled in Pennsylvania, they probably realized an animal popping up from the ground cannot predict the weather. But the tradition continued. Unfortunately, there were not many hedgehogs in Pennsylvania. It was then substituted for, you guessed it, the groundhog. This celebration all takes place in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, a small town of about 5,000, 80 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. Now the name for the succession of groundhogs that live there to predict the weather are called Punxsutawney Phil Sowerby. These little guys have been giving their prognostications for over 130 years. The legendary first trip to Gobbler's Knob, the home of Punxsutawney Phil Sowerby, was taken in 1887. It is said that when a Phil appears from his burrow and doesn't see his shadow, then spring will come early. However, if the groundhog emerges to see a shadow and scuttles back down, then winter will last for another six weeks. Most people are familiar with Groundhog Day due to the 1993 film starring Bill Murray. Now let's take a quick detour for a moment to talk about the film. Murray plays selfish and grumpy weatherman Phil Connors of Channel 9, who has been assigned to go to Punxsutawney to cover the events of the Groundhog. His attitude about it is, let's just say, less than apathetic. After a half-hearted report that a coming winter storm will pass, he is found to be wrong. The storm does come and he finds himself stuck in Punxsutawney with all the hicks as he says. But not only is he stuck in the town, he is stuck repeating the same exact day over and over again. That day is February 2nd. Karma had perhaps caught up to him and it was time he learned to change his self-centered ways. After realizing that his actions had no consequences due to the fact that the next morning he woke up restarting the same day. He participates in one-night stands, commits suicide, and even learns to play the piano. Which, of course, all seems fun. At first. But not surprisingly, becomes, well, repetitive. Needless to say, Connors becomes sick of this one-day cycle, and he tries to tell his news producer Rita, who at this point, he had fallen in love with.
5: I'm a god.
6: You're
4: a
5: god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think.
4: Because you survived a car wreck?
2: You folks ready to order?
5: I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal.
4: Why are you telling me this?
5: Because I want you to believe in me.
4: You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking.
5: How do you know I'm not a god? (laughs) Oh,
4: please.
5: How do you know?
4: Because it's not possible.
5: Doris. This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies.
3: Oh, boy, what I, what are you doing?
5: This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What?
4: Lovely ring.
5: This hey. is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am.
3: What about me,
4: Phil? Do you know me too?
5: I know all about you. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh.
4: Well, everyone knows that.
5: You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to a lake in the summer with your family up in the mountains. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof. And a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel.
4: How are you doing this?
5: I told you, I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. And there's nothing I can do about it. If you still can't believe me, listen. Uh, In in ten seconds, Larry is going to come through that door take you away from me. But you can't let him. Larry. Please believe me. You've got to believe me.
6: So how did Phil Connors break the cycle? He changed his ways. He was kind and thoughtful and even helped save an old homeless man's life. And that was when he woke up on February 3rd. After the film, there was some controversy about how long weatherman Phil Connors of Channel 9 was stuck in this time loop. Some say two weeks. Buddhists believe that it must have been 10,000 years for him to pass from one life to the next with some heart change. Experts decided it just had to undo his life of selfishness that he had previously led. So about 30 to 40 years of repeating the same day. That's between 10,950 and 14,600 days. One would hope that after cycling through the same day that many times, he would eventually learn to write his ways. So the film was sending a message. Just like Punxsutawney Phil's prognostications are meant to show a shift and change in the weather, so Phil Connors needed some shift in attitude and personality. The film became a cult classic even being added to the United States' National Registry of Film, meaning it is culturally, historically, aesthetically significant. It made the name Punxsutawney Phil a national cultural reference in the U.S. Punxsutawney still has a gathering every year held by the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, which was established in 1887. A select group called the Inner Circle takes care of Phil year-round and also plans the annual ceremony. Members of the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club's inner circle are recognizable by their top hats and tuxedos. Crowds as many as 40,000 have gathered in this little town to witness this event. However, if you can't get there, don't worry. It is webcasted for those who can't make it. There are also other gatherings held across the country. They just won't have Punxsutawney Phil Sourby. which, according to the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, Punxsutawney Phil is the only true weather forecasting groundhog. The others, they're just all imposters.
0: This is our American stories. Great job, Faith, on that. And Groundhog Day, on this day in history, back in 1841, was, well, it's the first time it was ever referenced that way. The first time we ever used those words around that day and this day. And this day in history, as always, is brought to us by the great folks... At Hillsdale College, go to hillsdale.edu for all of their great you, courses. This is Our American Stories. I got you, baby. They say our
4: love won't pay the rent.
0: Before it's
4: earned, our money's all been spent. I guess that's so we don't have a plot. But at least I'm sure of
3: all the things we got. Hey, shut up. Don't
4: lie to me. You think I'm blind, but I've got eyes to see. Hey, hey, mister.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And we love telling stories about music. And we also love telling stories about history. And on this day in American history, well, we've got a story for you today. But before we get into the story, I just wanted to say that all of our This Day in Histories are brought to you by Hillsdale College. And it's the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life, philosophy, art. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for so many of their brilliant courses. And now, well, it's time you hear a story you may have heard in passing, yet you may have forgotten the unforgettable details.
3: It is odd to watch with what feverish ardour Americans pursue prosperity,
7: ever tormented by the shadowy suspicion that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. They cleave to the things of this world as if assured that they will never die, and yet rush to snatch any that comes within their reach, as if they expected to stop living before they had relished them. Death steps in, in the end, and stops them, before they have grown tired of this futile pursuit of that complete felicity which always escapes them. Alexis de
3: Tocqueville.
7: 1846. Thousands of men, women, and children riding, walking, pushing. They're heading for a new life 2,500 miles away. Germans, Belgians, French, Catholics, Presbyterians, Mormons. One of the world's great mass migrations begins. The pioneer spirit is moving west. In this colossal migration to Oregon and California, America will finally define its character. When the pioneer movement began, fewer than 20,000 white Americans lived west of the Mississippi River. 10 years later, a half a million pioneers stepped off into the Western wilderness. It's the American dream. Then as now, the people want an already good life, to get better. They can walk 10 miles a day for up to six months straight. Some go through 10 pairs of boots, each. Half are children. On route, one in five of the women are pregnant. But these aren't America's poor. Families sell farms saved for five years to join the exodus, risking it all. Here's best-selling author, Jeanette Walls.
4: I think if there is one episode that encapsulates the American spirit, I think it is probably the move west. Whip those mules and horses and cross those rivers and cross over those mountains to the unknown and say, I'm leaving everything behind, I'm leaving everything that I know behind to reinvent myself.
7: A wagon and oxen cost a minimum of five thousand dollars in today's money, but it buys a complete life support machine. The wagons carry a precious cargo, a thousand pounds of supplies, and a grub stake for their journey. Your entire new life in the West. The pioneering spirit is ingenious. Essential drinking water captured from rain on the wagon canvas. Even the oxen's dung is fuel for fires. And like today, there are tolls. The Indians charge $10 for road and $100 for river crossings, in modern money. But the greatest toll of all, human lives. In all, 20,000 Americans will die reaching the West. 10 graves for every mile. But of all the stories to come out of the West, none has cut more deeply into the imagination of the American people than the tale of the Donner Party. This one story of suffering and death will show just how far the pioneers will go to conquer the West. Here's historian Joseph King. I think we're
8: curious, you know, about people who, who've experienced uh, hardship, uh, who've gone through terrible ordeals. And certainly the Donner Party, you know, 87
7: people went through uh, a crisis, the like of which uh, few human beings have ever faced. And we're curious about that. It can tell us something, I think, about ourselves, about the limits of human experience. June, 1846. Nine brand-new covered wagons rattle out of Springfield, Illinois, and head west. One of their leaders is 62-year-old George Donner. His wife, Tamsin Donner, is a schoolteacher. But on the trail, women must be ready to do anything.
3: Another girl. Oh, welcome to the world. <coughs> These women were made
7: up of the strongest fiber possible. The journey is tough, but the going is good. Tamsin Donner writes in her journal.
4: I could never have believed we could have traveled so far with so little difficulty. Indeed, if we do not experience anything worse, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started.
7: But as leader of the wagon train, Tamsin's husband, George Donner, is aware there's one final obstacle to their journey. The Sierra Nevada. Peaks up to 14,000 feet. Failure to clear the mountain passes before the first snowfalls. The consequences are terrifying. But as the Donner party approaches Utah, George Donner makes a fateful decision, leading a splinter group off of the main party. The group now consists of 87 people, nine families, and 16 single men. George Donner's two brothers, Jacob and James Reed, follow with their families. Has read one of the many popular new trail guidebooks by Lanceford Hastings.
0: We've given the Hastings cutoff very careful study. Well, who is this Lanceford Hastings? He's the man that found the way through. He's the one that wrote that guidebook.
7: Hastings was trying to garner support from the government for his so-called shortcut to the West. Hastings cutoff claimed to shave two weeks off the journey time.
8: Lansford Hastings would not publish this immigrant's guide showing us the best route to California if he did not travel every step of it himself.
7: Problem was, he never traveled it himself, let alone with a trail of wagons.
8: Tomorrow, I turn my wagons to the Hastings Cut-Off. Now, who will follow? Will you stand?
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we hate to cut you off like that, but we have to. And on the other side of this break, you'll find out what happened. But my goodness, it seems pretty ominous. And again, this is brought to you, our This Day in History, always, by Hillsdale College. And again, if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, and you've already gone to college, or you never plan on going to college... Hillsdale can come to you with their magnificent faculty online at hillsdale.edu. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and more on the Donner Party and their remarkable story, their harrowing story, after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we want to bring you right back to the Donner Party story and where we left off.
7: George Donner's brother, James Reed, wrote in his diary on July 31st, 1846.
8: Hastings' cutoff is said to be a saving of 400 miles. We are informed it is a fine level road with plenty
1: of water and grass.
7: But Donner's information is wrong. In fact, the shortcut adds a hundred miles to the journey. Way should be clear.
3: Let's hope to God. The snow will close the passes in the fall whether we are through or not.
7: High in the Sierra Nevada, the Donner party enters the Truckee Pass. They're only 30 miles from the California Plains. Then this happened. It
3: was sundown. The weather was clear, but a large circle around the moon indicated an approaching storm. John
7: Breen. Supplies are dangerously low. Their water supply is gone. Eighty crazed and dehydrated oxen have run away. Twenty-one other oxen are killed with poisoned arrows by Paiute Indians. From the bluffs above the river, they could hear the Paiutes laughing at their plight. (laughs) Then this happened. A broken front axle. The Donner party stops to make repairs near Truckee Lake. Cutting timber for a new axle George Donner gashes his hand. That night, five feet of snow falls.
3: Five feet of new snow up there. We've lost the road.
7: Soon, the drifts are 60 feet deep.
5: Can we get through? No.
7: Not anymore. The pass is completely blocked. The Donner party will be stranded for five months.
4: We made a fire and got something to eat. Ma spread down a buffalo rope and set up by the fire. The Indians knew we were doomed and one of them wrapped his blanket about him and stood all night under a tree.
7: In just three weeks, they've eaten all their food. The men, women, and children are all dying. Almost every day becomes someone's last. They kill their pack animals. Then they eat charred bones, boiled hides, twigs, bark, leaves, dirt, and worse. Here's George Donner's daughter, Eliza
6: even the
4: wind held its breath as the suggestion was made that were one to die the rest might live
7: cannibalism Christmas 1846 they eat their first human averting their faces from each other and weeping Only the two Indians, Luis and Salvador, refuse to eat. The bodies are cut up, flesh labeled, so people don't eat their own kin. The fourth rescue party brings out almost all survivors, but not all. The winter recorded as the worst ever in the Sierra Nevada mountains is making it almost impossible for the rescue teams to operate. The very last rescue finds a delirious Lewis Kiesberg alone. Surrounded by the half-eaten dead, no one else was alive. George Donner's body is found, skull split open, brain removed. Tamsin Donner's body is never found, though a survivor confessed to eating her. Two-thirds of the women and children made it through. Two-thirds of the men perished. Here's historian David McCullough.
1: Of the 87 men, women, and children in the Donner Party, 46 survived. 41 died. Five women, 14 children, and 22 men counting John Sutter's Indians, Lewis and Salvador. Of all the families, the Donners suffered the most. All four adults and four of the children died.
7: The pass is renamed the Donner Pass, a testament to the hardship of the pioneers going west. News of the Donner Party tragedy made headlines around the world. Immigration to California fell off sharply. Then in January of 1848, gold was discovered in John Sutter's Creek. By late 1849, more than 100,000 people rushed to California to dig and sift near the streams and canyons where the Donner party had suffered so much.
4: not wrote you half of the trouble we have had but I have wrote you enough to let you know what trouble is but thank God we are the only family that did not eat human flesh we have left everything but I don't care for that we have got through with our lives don't let this letter dishearten anybody remember never take no cutoffs And hurry along as fast as you can. Virginia Reed.
7: The Donner Party. This day in history.
0: Great job on that, Greg. Never take no cutoffs. Advice... Others would heed. Again, 46 survived, 41 died. And there are so many stories like this as America made its way from east to west. Manifest Destiny didn't come without a price. And just great storytelling. And uh, last week we told the story of Rich DeVos. And we spent an hour on his life. And it was a great American life. But there was one thing we left off, and we figured it was a good time to play it right now. Uh, And it's a a portion of a speech. He went around the country sharing with as many Americans as he could about his own country.
2: The next time that fellow comes by who picks up the garbage at your house, he's a fellow American who's using his talent to do what he can do, that he too is a part of the great mainstream of American life, I had an interesting experience because I, I, I like garbage men. But I went out for four weeks in a row. This fellow comes by at 6.30 in the morning because I wanted to meet him. I said, hi, how are you this morning? Just came out to tell you I appreciate your coming. He looked at me and he says, are you just getting up or are you just coming in?
3: <laughs>
2: Wasn't sure. I said, no, I really, I just came out to say hello. I said, I appreciate you coming by. Now, if you don't think you appreciate his coming by, you just let him skip you a couple times. And you'll find out how important he is in your life. And you know, about the fourth time I went out there, I said, just come out and say hello again. I said, I really mean it. I appreciate your coming. Do you realize how important the work is that you do? What it does for the sanitation of this community? How it protects the health and welfare of all the people? he says,
8: well, I'll be damned. (laughs)
2: been picking up garbage for years man nobody ever told me that and i say to you isn't it too bad that a fellow american who's doing what he's able to do has had no one tell him how important his work is he says you know he says you're one in a million well i don't want to be one in a million and i ask you to join me in a crusade of respectability for all your fellow americans I marvel at the Ph.D. who works for us, and he's a wonderful man. I look at the chemists we have, and I notice how helpless they are when it comes to emptying the waste basket. And then I look at the people who come to work and work on the line, and I look at the school bus drivers, and we say, why well, he's just a bus driver. And the other people say, well, he's just a businessman, he's just a salesman. We eradicate the words just from your vocabulary. Nobody is just to anything. He's a man or a woman doing what he knows how to do best. That's the real son. So if a guy fixes your car, remember to greet him. Remember to thank him. And if all of us will begin to do this, we can change America. We can break down the barriers between I'm better than you. There's too much of it.
0: And there is too much of it. And we're going to play more and more of that speech because it's one of the great ones of all time. Great storytelling on the Donner Party, and what great storytelling by Rich DeVos. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
2: at the age of 14, as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race. And it's quite a life story. And of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb. And my goodness, a racing icon would be, well, just selling him short. And joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamers series... Mario Andretti, let's start where we always like to start, all of our interviews, in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born, and tell us a little bit about your parents.
8: Well, I was born in Italy, um, and the region is uh, Istria, and however, now it's uh, Croatia. And there's, uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940 at the beginning of World War Two, and uh, uh, the region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been. But uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost, uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito, and uh, there was a choice. For all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become um, refugees, basically, uh, back in mainland Italy. And uh, and my family chose that, you know, the latter part, um, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship and... uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to um, to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here, in, in fact, in Nazareth where I live now, and um, and this it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would. Uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. And that's the story.
0: And what did your dad do, Mario? There uh, in in Italy, what did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war torn Europe to now living in what I guess you could just call a a camp. Almost, a, it sounds like a not a prison camp because it wasn't. A refugee camp couldn't have been that that plush
8: well no it wasn't uh, well actually uh, yeah i mean it was uh it was nothing normal about what happened to us obviously uh, and uh but uh credit to my father first of all uh, the first part of the question my dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh land holdings from the family uh, on his uh on his mother's side because he lost his uh, his parents at age two and four respectively and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, And but the family on that side owned uh, about 2,000 acres of land, about 2,100 acres and uh, seven tenants and my dad was the administrator of that of those holdings Then basically he was a farmer and uh, so he had no other skills you know when we um uh when he moved on and uh that was a difficult part obviously uh, to be able to obtain uh, uh, a professional job of some kind and uh, and when we were while we were in the camp as you said i mean the uh, conditions were very very basic but uh, again my dad always provided for us uh we were always uh, Dressed properly and uh, went to school, and uh, never cold and uh, never hungry. You know, he always took took care of the family. Uh, that's, that's a very proud man, and that's something that I've always looked up to be, to him because of uh, of that. He had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way.
0: And he never quit, Mario. It sounds like he never quit on you, his family, despite the the toughest circumstances. So you're living in Italy. Uh, and you, you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that, that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy?
8: Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954. And uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol. It was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion uh, for Ferrari. And as you can imagine, as an Italian driving Ferrari and, and being, uh, so strong, uh, as kids, uh, i be, you know, I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And, um, uh, as an idol, he, uh, he just actually helped shape my future, to be honest with you, in my own mind, because between, uh, my twin brother, Aldo, and myself, uh, from their on We did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what. Had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives and uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But, um, but the dream never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong and uh, first opportunity uh, you know we pursued it you know when we came to the states two years later aldo and i started building a car to race locally
0: we're going to hold that thought and when we come back on the other end this incredible life story a story that started in italy that was impacted by political tumult in europe and ended in a little town in pennsylvania called nazareth the life of mario andretti when we come back this is lee habib And this is our American stories.
2: the world asks anybody, you know, who is is the greatest American racing driver, I I, I think 90% literally of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti.
0: You just heard from auto sport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. And this is our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti you were lucky in this respect you you come into a place called america into a small town called nazareth not far away is a little dirt track from what i from what i understand mario right. and you and your twin brother without your dad i don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't uh talk about what you guys did what was that first car by the way we love just asking people what their first cars were anyway but what was that first car and what did you and aldo do what was the first race talk about both of those things
8: well First of all the uh the car that we built was uh, a in nineteen forty eight Hudson Hornet which was uh, actually um a car a car that was uh brand that was very successful in NASCAR racing. And it was uh, not popular that car here at this local level but uh, but we chose that, you know, with the help of some other, you know, couple other friends uh which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> and, yep. and uh and we followed that advice and um uh, and we built that car and and uh but uh we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh here um you know he knew that we were following motor racing and um and we were all in and this kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something. And uh, then Alberto Scari is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955, uh, on a way over on a ship, Conte Biancamano, Mano, uh, during the time that the uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans was running. That's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport They're always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So uh, seeing, for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, oh, you kids are crazy. Don't even think about it, type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not, in any way, understand how strong we uh, believed in it, and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car, and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, it took. We figure. Uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and, uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished, uh, two years later in 1959, we were only 19. And we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So, uh, we had, uh, we fudged the, uh, Birth date on the licenses, and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days, obviously there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that. And uh, we started racing at age 19 without my dad knowing. And the only defense that we had on that, uh, or the buffer that we had there, was the uh, language barrier, you know, because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you, things, because we were winning races. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I keep saying this, uh, which is a fact. And, uh, at, at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. He just wanted, he didn't understand. He thought <laughs> right. that the boss was uh, telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season at the very last race, an invitational race, that, uh, Aldo um, almost killed. You know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which uh, you know, he had a um, actually uh, fractured skull and all that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time. And uh, he was even given his last rites that time, and my dad didn't even know it, but that's how he found out. He almost felt vindicated. You know, see, I told you guys. You know, (laughs) type of thing.
0: Yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we. We spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story, and Aldo had said it was, he was sure glad you had to tell him. You guys yeah, were no, it,
8: uh, When Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while after he opened his eyes and so forth. You know, took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, "I'm sure, you, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man." <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we got him back.
0: <laughs> uh, so your you, your career, your your brother was racing, uh, but you you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who are who are key people in your life, Mario? Who who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you? Your well, team.
8: I mean, there was uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see uh, the burning passion that uh, I had, and uh, uh, you know, after this, uh, this stock, I didn't want to make a career out of you know local stock cars. I wanted to get into single seaters, and uh, and my one of the first ones that actually help was uh, my uh, now my wife my wife's father uh, and uh and his partner they you know I needed to buy a midget a midget uh, car a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter and that's where a lot of the owners would scout drivers you know for the full size midgets for the regular season and uh and I was I bought a uh a famous car and I made a deal with uh with Earl, uh Earl Hoke, It was uh you know, my uh that's Hoke is my uh my wife's maiden name and uh and they invested in that car and that's what got me going it was another plateau a launching pad if you will because uh I won some races, I was competitive and uh I got noticed and I got a, a really a good ride uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, midget, which were running the ARDC club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent midget uh, s- uh, series uh, with all the icons of midget racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadio, some of the icons of midget racing is of the era. And, uh, and that, you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, but uh, well, Rufus Gray, the individual, actually he owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names like Jud Larson driving for him and uh, USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing, and he gave me a ride, and he became you know. Uh, Sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing. Because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars. Uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrated into sprint cars, like AJ Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this, Parnelli Jones, driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them. And all of a sudden, I was, started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And, uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get it right because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. In those days was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and and um, and earned my my way, you know, uh, into a solid ride. So uh, again, it was just uh, everything was by chance. You know, there was no guarantees anywhere. You had uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world, but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's really the way it worked out for me
0: you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's what so many greats and so many people who quote get lucky or quote have opportunity they're just there and you're there often enough and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamers series with Mario Andretti continues after these words from our sponsors. is lee habib and this is our american stories and we return with our conversation with mario andretti and we focus in on the family and the importance of family i want to talk about your wife because she played such an important part mario and particularly in the early days where she was in some ways helping support the entire project and how does a guy do this without a strong family background it's got to be
3: hard
8: yeah i mean uh I'll tell you what you you have no idea uh the important role uh that she played um you know in in my career and and uh and in in indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because um uh, you know the um uh, uh you know even as an individual uh she i knew that she would take care of like you know we got married i got married young and and the career was going I had kids and I didn't have a steady job I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which uh, you know, it <laughs> can be, <Yep.
3: laughs>
8: can be pretty sketchy sometimes. <laughs> right. But, but it worked, and, and she worked. You know, like even to give you an idea when, um, uh, when 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 I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three quarter midget that uh, her dad had financed, she was working and uh, she was pregnant, and uh, on her way to one of the races. Uh, she's, she's just like sobbing a little bit, you know. I said, what's, what's the matter? At the end, she said, I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you? She was seven months pregnant. I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. I said, <laughs> I said how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, "Oh, right, so, <laughs> listen As you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines from week to week. You know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know? and <laughs> so, uh, things like that. But uh, you know, we laugh about it. Obviously, you know. But uh, she was a rock behind me throughout. You know, and uh, uh, and and again, you know, she, she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today. But uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she she had no choice. I guess uh, you know and she knew that this was our path and uh even with the kids uh, and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it you know but um, uh, she carried the burden you know the family make sure everything is running smoothly and and uh, and at the same time supporting me by just you know just just doing her thing you know being behind and uh, uh it was never like well, what i liked it was the stability that she created because uh uh, she always very in, in check with her emotions, you know, and um, and it was never like uh, you know ticker tape parade if I brought home a trophy or uh, you know like a, a black stripe on her arm if I didn't, you know, was, right. everything was even, you know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really uh, that was uh, what I needed. You well, lucky you,
0: lucky you, Mario. Is all and every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like an actor or a minor league ball player. But my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that, the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are you're a person who puts risk into the calculus, uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living.
8: Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the 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 danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the '60s, '70s, it, you know was certainly not as, uh, especially in the '60s, uh, uh, <laughs> not as safe as it is today, and. Uh, and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made uh, she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies, and and then uh, you know my best friend, when uh, Billy Foster, when he when he was killed, and uh, Judd Larson, and on and on. I mean, uh, we lost so many. Uh, Ronnie Peterson. I mean, she was uh, obviously always the one that uh, thinking, you know, when is is he going to come home? You know this. Uh, uh... after this race so uh... the spectrum of of that was always there and it was real uh... there was we were losing way too many you know and unfortunately and uh... and and i'm sure that 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 was always you know anxious moments for her as well uh... me as a driver i never you know never dwell on that side obviously uh... so i was pretty serene but uh... but her, I could see that side of, of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty, um, you know, all the time, every week, um, it had to be a, you know, tough moments. And, um, uh, and, and, and again, you know, just, uh, uh, you could tell there were, you know, I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, Because you know now watching you know my kids run and and my grandson and so forth, uh, all of a sudden I have uh, you know different anxieties you know that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself.
0: Yep, I think most coaches know this when, or, or most athletes, when they're playing, it's one thing. Then they watch their kids play, and it's like, oh, that's what my father was going through. Now yeah. I, now there I you get go. it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades. We're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing, because I think what people know those things. What they don't know is the man behind the the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series you obviously were named driver of the year in three different decades. It's remarkable. Driver of the quarter century, and of course, driver of the century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you, uh, and to, and to your family.
8: Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that, uh, stands out the most on a personal level is, uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix, um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big big time race. And that's where my dream really began, uh, or solidified. And, um, uh, and here we go, you know, I win in that place and then, uh, also clinched a world championship there at Monza, you know, so uh, that has, you know, personally that, nothing comes close to that. Uh, the others are, obviously, there are many races, they're very, every race has got its own uh, shining star, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, but uh, when you look at the classics, those are the ones that uh, you're judged by, like uh, winning Indianapolis or, or uh or winning Daytona type of thing you know because uh again those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series uh so you know everybody would focus on that i mean there were there were others for me uh, uh from a personal level however you know here I go I go fourth is uh, uh winning over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland 1986, <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one thousandths of a second, you know, that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And, and uh, when I look back and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole, or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates. You know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, When I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen, you know. How fortunate are we, how blessed we are.
0: And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had, always there with him. When we come back... Some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages.
2: Mario was one of those drivers. He was one of the bars that, that, uh, that people would compare themselves to. I mean, for sure, when I started driving, you know, if I, could, if I could keep up with Mario or if I could keep up with my dad, I'm doing good. And if I beat them, then I'd get great.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you just heard from Al Unser, Jr., Talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing. And few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife. But ultimately, this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, you know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you. In this really risky but really exhilarating profession.
8: Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that uh, and, you know if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it, or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And, uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business. You know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves.
0: And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line. Uh, Mario, talk about the business of this business. Cause it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked. And that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario.
8: Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, uh, then it's got to be a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's... Uh, a lot that goes behind it, the strategies that go behind it, um, and um, and again, uh, uh, I I was always I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive, but a driver is is a driver. However, always had um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and right. bring us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to my, who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team, and and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well, and uh, I draw for some of the, you know, the the icons in our sport over the years in different disciplines and I was very very obviously this is what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results.
0: You know it wasn't always uphill for you too I mean there were dry spells and by the way athletes experience this too Mario how did you handle that how did you cope I mean when things just aren't firing so to speak on all cylinders how do you keep it together how do you keep positive especially with all the expectations and actually probably some people rooting for you to fail
8: yeah no question i mean there's you have experienced all that if you're in it for the long pull, believe me you're gonna have the ups and downs and uh and that i mean the, the when you're down that's really what tests uh, your uh, your will you know to just pull out of your willpower and uh your mindset you know all of those elements they're so important because uh again it's <laughs> it's not gonna be always a better roses when you're at the top. Uh, you know darn well it's not going to last, and you fight like crazy. You know to uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know uh, you can dwell on the negative. You got to start keep searching, keep searching, and uh, maintain a positive attitude. You know to pull out of it.
0: I want to talk to you about class and that income. That is, if you had tried to pursue. Uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth. Would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America, where really almost anybody can get anywhere in in this country? Talk about
3: that.
8: Well, I'm uh, you know I'm glad you brought that up actually because uh, quite honestly, if uh, uh if we would have stayed in Europe I, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever you know especially within uh, the uh, the age limit you know to take advantage of a career I uh, could have got started so uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened uh, during the war the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative but it became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because, uh, I, I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. Uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his, uh, you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, uh, uh, you know, we loved uh, uh, my Uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was uh, an aviator in the aviation. He was in, in, had motorcycles. He had, you know, it was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, as I say, just... just If we would have remained there, I probably, um, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something.
0: Now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, Your biggest regret, that is, the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life?
8: Well, (laughs) you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know... You could always do something better, you mm-hmm. know, by looking at it now. Okay, I might have made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. You know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one, to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo. And I went with my heart. You know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend, uh, engineer there and so forth. And I thought Alfa Romeo was, was ready to, uh, to spring, you know, into the, uh, to the top, uh, in Formula One. And, and instead I, and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another ch- world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could, you know, now that I have a chance to revisit, but overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, the the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, And so I, again, no regrets. That's
0: great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment?
8: The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout.
0: Yeah. And and faith, does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that, that part of your life.
8: Faith does. Uh, and uh, again, uh, not just the fact that uh, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle Priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything even then. Um uh, and uh it was just that but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Don Tambellini, who uh really uh somehow without forcing things uh like uh instill certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep and and always knowing that uh you can't do things alone, you know, you need some help, whether it's you know, it's it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please, you know. And uh, <laughs> and, and 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 somehow it, it it works for you. It always did, and always will.
0: And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, a, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have.
8: Well, hobbies, I mean, that's what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate that we have a a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and and I have uh, every toy imaginable. You know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight. Uh, We play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic. And uh, hey, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast.
0: You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition and that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older if that's who you are and it's baked into your DNA Mario I I so appreciate you uh, taking the time and I will most definitely take you up on the offer by the way your first victory uh, was in a place called Teaneck New Jersey and that's where I was born I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck New Jersey so yeah
8: it was a big victory I had a hundred lapper there with um, in, in my three-quarter midget yeah
0: well, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir.
8: It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet.
0: Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. org.